This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It's season four of Office Hours, and we're studying the book of Hebrews this year. And the theme, Jesus is really better. Hebrews was most likely written in the mid-60s of the first century A.D. to a predominantly Jewish congregation that was being tempted to turn away from Christ back to the Old Covenant, back to the types and shadows, and to a rabbinical understanding of the Old Testament. Joining us on Office Hours again today to talk about Hebrews chapters 4 and 5 is W. Robert Godfrey, professor of church history and president of Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of several books, including John Calvin, Pilgrim, and Pastor. Reformation Sketches, and most recently, Westminster Seminary, California, A New Old School. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Imagine being back so soon. Good to be here with you, Scott. It's been a good series of discussions in Hebrews chapters 3, 4, and then today we'll move on to chapter 5. But we start in Hebrews 4.14. So if the listener has a Bible before them, that's where we are. And it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So the theme has shifted now from Sabbath and rest and entering into the land, as it were, or into the rest, as it were, to priesthood. Just to begin, historically, Christians have had a lot of trouble letting Jesus be the high priest, Hebrews says that he is. Why is that? Probably a variety of reasons. One is, of course, that the sort of Hebrew Christians to whom this letter is addressed were so accustomed to the idea that there was a separate caste of priests headed by the high priest, that this had been a long-standing Old Testament institution. Of course, it was a very visible priesthood. It was a priesthood that could be seen, a priesthood whose ministry was external and open. And so for a lot of people, there was a sense of loss when that visibility was lost. You can see that in uh, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, where the very architecture of a Roman Catholic Church is in many ways a reconstruction of the Old Testament temple so that you you enter the sanctuary or holy place and then up front there's an altar rail that really separates the holy place from the most holy place. There's an altar, there's a priest, there's a sacrifice. And people really like that. They like the idea that it's visible. They like the idea, I think, that there is a priest there who sort of does for them what they can't do for themselves. There's something correct about that instinct. Our high priest, Jesus, does do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, but he has not then established a separate continuing priesthood. He has called us all to be priests. If there's any priesthood in addition to Jesus' priesthood, it's the priesthood of all believers. It's the fact that we're we're to be a royal priesthood as Ironically, Peter teaches us, ironically I say because some Roman Catholics look to him as the author and finisher, well, maybe not quite, but as the uh, first of their uh, teachers and leaders. And yet it's precisely Peter who talks about the New Testament priesthood being a priesthood of all believers. The idea of having somebody to be the sort of mediator, the the go-between, is very attractive. And in the time before the Reformation, the Church came up with all sorts of mediators, both human priests who stood at the altar and offered propitiatory sacrifice, as it was taught, for the people, but also then all sorts of heavenly mediators as well who stood 
between man and God. The saints and the Virgin Mary were seen as patrons who would carry prayers for us to God in a way that would be more efficacious than our being able to pray directly to God. And all of this is a a failure to understand the way in which New Testament religion has completed Old Testament religion and is a way of continuing to live in the shadows that is wrong, according to the New Testament. Belgic Confession 26 actually speaks to this both doctrinally and pastorally. There's always been a temptation to find some other mediator. And how did it come to be historically that Jesus came to be seen as so remote that we needed to find substitute mediators? Well, I believe it's a byproduct of the fundamentally hierarchical thinking of the ancient world, that earth has a hierarchy with the emperor at the top, heaven has a hierarchy with God at the top. Most people realize they can't go talk to the emperor. They have to have a go-between. They have to have somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. They rather naturally understandably, but wrongly, uh, concluded that was the way heaven worked too, that just as I can't talk to the emperor, so I can't talk to God, and I need somebody in the heavenly court who can plead my case, just as in the earthly imperial court, I need someone to plead my case if I'm to get a hearing. And that sort of way of looking at the world just infiltrated the church, and the church just drifted into adopting that way of thinking. Isn't it the case that Jesus was visually and visibly portrayed to the church for a very long time as a distant, exalted, royal, priestly figure who couldn't really be approached. Right. You know, the iconography of Jesus is different at different times and different places, but certainly one of the recurring icons is Jesus as the second Moses, a ferocious, threatening, unapproachable. And that goes along with that medieval story that when Mary died and came up to heaven, Jesus had said to her, Mother, I'm so glad you're here. I'll divide my kingdom with you. I'll be the king of righteousness and you be the queen of mercy. And that story is apocryphal in case you were in doubt. But uh, (laughs) it very much captures the attitude of many late ancient and medieval Christians that Jesus is so ferociously holy that we need someone else who can be a go-between between us and Jesus. From Westminster Seminary, California. So it's very interesting in 414, it says we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. So the ancient church was right. Jesus and the medieval church was correct in a sense. Jesus is exalted. He is glorious. But Hebrews wants us to draw a very different conclusion from that. Right. A very surprising conclusion, really. And it's clearly a very important theme in Hebrews. It doesn't just originate here, but it's already been introduced earlier in chapter 1, verse 3. You remember it was intimated at where it says, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So already we have Jesus being introduced as a kind of priest king who makes purification for his people, and then explicitly towards the end end of chapter 2, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So this theme of priesthood is introduced early on and continues to be developed till almost the end of the book. And again, I think it's very much because the author had this sense that lots of people were being tempted to return to the old priesthood, and he wants really to make so clear how much better a priest Jesus is than any Jewish priest had ever been. There's clearly an implied contrast here between Jesus, the one high priest who has gone up, and all the other earthly priests, Aaronic, Levitical, who haven't gone up, but who have time after time, year after year, gone down, as it were. They've all died. Right. And Jesus, to be sure, died, 
but he didn't remain dead, and he alone has ascended. And he alone, according to Hebrews, has actually gone into not the copy of the Holy of Holies, but the original Holy of Holies. Exactly. And this, again, is that theme that the earthly institutions and history of Israel are pointers beyond themselves, that the earthly Jerusalem really points to the heavenly Jerusalem, the earthly temple points to the heavenly temple, the earthly high priest points to the coming of the heavenly high priest. And this theme will be developed more in detail in Hebrews 8 and 9, but the point there is that he's a priest forever by the power of an indestructible life, that priests come and go on earth, they they live and they die, and you're always looking for the next one. But one of the glorious things about Jesus is he lives forever. Therefore, his mediatorial priesthood, his care for his people, his prayers for his people never fail. They go on forever. I think that phrase, the power of an indestructible life, is a marvelous one to focus on and meditate on. That's who our Jesus is. He's not only the high priest, he is, in verse 14, the Son of God. All the other priests were the Son of Man, and to be sure, Jesus is also the Son of Man. But it can't be said of them, the way it is said here, that he is Son of God. And therefore, we are to hold fast to our confession, which gives us an interesting glimpse into the public congregational life of the church here. Right, and here in chapter 5, Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, which is arguably the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, because it's so crucial for the interpretation of the Old Testament and the understanding of Jesus. And although Hebrews doesn't make this point explicitly here, it is made implicitly here, where Psalm 110 has David saying, the Lord, Yahweh, has said unto my Lord, sit at your right hand. And Jesus presses this on the Pharisees. Who is David's Lord? Well, They can't answer him because any human descendant of David is not David's Lord, but is David's servant, is David's son. And therefore, Jesus is rightly forcing the point that is made here in chapter 5, that he's David's Lord because he's the son of God, because God has appointed him and made him son and king on earth. And this is what they confessed. Right. Regularly, corporately, in public worship. Now, verse 15, going back to the theme that we were on a moment ago, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There are a lot of surprising things in the book of Hebrews, and one of them is tempted as we are. This is not something that I think a lot of us would say without a great deal of care. And I can imagine people being reluctant even to say this. But this is a very important point for the pastor to make to the congregation. Absolutely. And it ties this passage in with what is preceded. The preceding section that we've talked about a couple of weeks in a row was so solemn, so almost scary, that there's this horrible temptation that the people of God are subject to, the temptation to faithlessness, the temptation to a disobedience that is a complete rejection of the covenant and unbelief. And now I think the author is saying, as seriously as we need to take that threat, that danger that surrounds us, let's never be discouraged, but remember that we have a high priest who really understands what we're going through. Don't think that our Savior is an unsympathetic Savior. Don't think about Jesus the way the medievals did. It's, it's almost a prophecy that that Jesus is always merciful. He's always understanding. He's always sympathetic because he faced every temptation we faced, and having become a man, had to learn obedience. Which, this is so central, Belgic 26 says, no one loves us more when we use the wrong intercessors to get to God. 
whether it's the Blessed Virgin or whether we're invoking saints or whatever we're doing, we're actually, the Beltic says, dishonoring those people because they never intended themselves, nor would they ever want us to be treating them or thinking of them that way. And no one of them loves us nearly as much as Jesus does. Right. And I think that is such a critical point that if we do not see the love of God in Christ, then we haven't seen Christ. We don't understand who he is. And that's what's really being highlighted here. And that's why I think one of the really remarkable phrases in all of Scripture is what we find in chapter 4, verse 16 here, the throne of grace. Most of the time in the Bible, almost always in the Bible, a throne is a place of judgment. It's a place of authority. It's a solemn place. And it would not have been so very surprising if verse 16 had said, let us draw near to the throne of righteousness or the throne of holiness or the throne of power. But very deliberately, I think he intends us to be a little surprised that the throne that we approach, far from being a fearsome place, is a place of grace. Mm. The high priest is enthroned there as king for us and is able both powerfully to help us, but also sympathetically to understand us. When we think of royal majesty, we don't think of warmth, acceptance, sympathy, help. We think of judgment and righteousness and and fear. I don't know why exactly. This probably says something about me, but I was no thinking. Doubt. <laughs> I was thinking about the Wizard of Oz and how hard he tried to make himself seem awesome and fearsome. And of course, there was not much really behind all of that, but he was calling on images that are deeply embedded in the human psyche, human soul, consciousness. And as you say, Hebrews has really surprisingly and wonderfully defied our expectations by combining grace with royalty and priesthood. Right. And anyone who's had an opportunity to travel in Europe and see throne rooms in various countries, the whole point of the construction of a throne room is to sort of overawe the suppliants. And one of the things that always struck me when I was in Europe is how throne rooms tend to be relatively small. They need to be small, A, so they don't overwhelm the monarch. That's not God's problem, of course. But also their very smallness is a constant testimony. Not very many people are allowed in here. This is a place for the elite. If you're here, you ought to be sufficiently aware of the honor that has been done you to be allowed to be here. And all of that is turned on its head here. This is the wide open throne room where everyone is invited and urged to come and to find their help in time of need. And we can be confident that he's able to help us because he isn't disqualified because he persevered through the temptation, unlike us, without sin. Right. And let us, therefore, it says in verse 16, with confidence, with boldness, which is exactly the sort of thing you would ordinarily need, extraordinary boldness to go into a royal presence. But we can go with confidence, with boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's so important, the way that's put there. The first thing we find at the throne of grace is mercy. And that's the first thing that sinners need. It's the first thing that those who may have been terrified by what they read in Hebrews 3 and 4, worried that maybe God loathes them. Define that for us. What is mercy as distinct from grace? Well, here, mercy is above all God's willingness to forgive our sins. I've heard it defined sometimes as not giving to us what we deserve and grace as giving to us what we do not deserve. Do you think that's fair in this context? Yeah, I think so. And it's interesting that in the New Testament, characteristically, mercy is used to translate the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed is God's 
covenant faithfulness and love and perseverance with his people. He sticks with us. He doesn't He sticks abandon. with us, right. And the great reason why stick-to-itiveness is needed is because we're sinners, and therefore mercy becomes the logical translation to say God is merciful to his people. His love never fails. And therefore, having forgiven our sins, then we find grace to help in the nick of time. I mean, this is, this is timely grace. That's the emphasis here. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480- 8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. People who are facing temptation, and in this case particularly the temptation to apostatize, need to understand that Jesus is there and willing and ready and able to help. Right. That it's not too late. Today is the day. Exactly. And I think that's so important. There are Christians who really, at various points in their lives, worry whether their sins are so great that they cannot be received, they cannot be forgiven. And the testimony of Scripture is, yes, they can. This is a throne of grace that's ready to receive them. Chapter 5 says, verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It's interesting that every priest is chosen from among men, but that's not quite true of Jesus, is it? Well, in a sense, he is. I mean, he, too, was a man. He was fully a man. And indeed, as the argument of this text goes forward, one of the things that's going to be addressed is... How can Jesus be a priest? And perhaps some of these Hebrew Christians had been hearing Jewish apologists saying, look, if the Scripture's clear about anything, it's that the priesthood arises from Aaron, and Jesus is not a descendant of Aaron. He's a descendant of David. And therefore, Jesus may be—you might be able to make the argument that Jesus is a king, but you can't possibly argue that he's a priest because he's not qualified. He's not descended from Aaron. And chapter 5, amongst other things, addresses that very particularly. And here's where the other great— important emphasis of Psalm 110 comes into play, quoted here in verse 6 of chapter 5, that Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's fascinating because Melchizedek is briefly mentioned in the Abraham story in Genesis and really mentioned nowhere else in the Old Testament except for this remarkable prophetic statement of David in Psalm 110. I've always wondered what the rabbis actually do with this. I'm not sure. I've meant to look it up, and I never have. But this is a most remarkable passage because Melchizedek's clearly not descended from Aaron, and yet he's a priest forever. And 
as Hebrews will develop later, part of why Melchizedek is so appropriate is that in the scripture, he's not identified in terms of who his parents are, and therefore he sort of comes out of the blue, we might almost say. And that's the way it is with Jesus. He he suddenly appears on the scene. So what validates his priesthood? Not physical descent from Aaron, but the appointment of God. And of course, how could that be denied that God has the right to appoint a priesthood, particularly a prophesied priesthood, uh, as he pleases, just as he appointed Aaron. Aaron had no inherent right to the priesthood except that God appointed him. And that's what's happening here. It's a priesthood, at least in literary terms, thinking about Melchizedek, that doesn't have a beginning, as you say, appears, as it were, out of the blue, and then disappears and recognized by Abraham. Right. So it's not as if it's arbitrary. Abraham sees Melchizedek, recognizes his not just priesthood, but his royal priesthood. He's a kingly character who's also a priest who then, just as mysteriously as he appears, literarily, he disappears. Right. As Steve Boss said to me just today as we were discussing Melchizedek, almost everyone in Genesis dies right after the fall. There's the repeated theme. He lived so many years and died. And only Enoch and Melchizedek don't die. Mm -hmm. And only Melchizedek comes from nowhere, as it were, and disappears. And of course, the readers of this book, the original readers, would have known that Melchizedek in Hebrew means the king of righteousness. And so this is a remarkable prophecy. And David knew it too. David was prophesying of one of the few figures in the Old Testament clearly superior to Abraham, because Abraham gives gifts to Melchizedek. He honors Melchizedek. And so Psalm 110 says, there's a Lord coming who's superior to David and superior to Abraham, he will be a king-priest. Now, a combination, a linking of the kingship and the priesthood was specifically forbidden in Israel. When Isaiah tried it, he was cursed with leprosy because God carefully kept kingship and priesthood separate because only Messiah who was to come would unite those things. And that's what we see so beautifully portrayed here. And when David ate the bread of presence, that was naughty. It wasn't something to be done. Right. It was extraordinary because it broke those barriers. But even there, he was given that bread by the priest. He didn't say, I am priest, therefore I may take this bread. Even in that act, he recognized a separation of kingship and priesthood. The priest here, as he's described by the pastor to these Jewish Christians, maybe some Gentiles, but predominantly Jewish congregation, says he can deal, verse 5-2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And then verse 3, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. It's interesting that he appeals to the compassion of the priest. What is he doing here when he ascribes weakness to the priest? What is he saying about Jesus? I think in the first place, he's reminding his readers that these priests, that they may be on the verge of preferring to Jesus, are in fact just sinners. In contrast, Jesus is not a sinner. But he's already anticipated the argument that Jesus, maybe because he's not a sinner, is not sympathetic. He's already made clear that Jesus is sympathetic, not only because he has been tempted, as we are, except without sin. Therefore, he's really faced sin. And indeed, John Murray made the interesting argument that we often think of Jesus as sinless, and therefore when temptation comes along, it's no problem, because he's holy, so he can resist temptation. We really don't think he was tempted. We really don't think he was tempted. And Murray said, in point of fact, the temptation Jesus 
faced was so much greater than anything we've ever known because the devil doesn't have to work very hard to get us to fall. <laughs> we're, we're so much sinners that we fall easily into sin, whereas the temptations of sin are brought home to Jesus in a way they never come home to us because they stand in all of their clarity in contrast to the righteousness that he possesses. He knows them in a way that we don't because right. we so often fail, and he right. persevered through the temptation without sinning. And so he understands fully our own temptations and is able to help. Now, the earthly priests, merely human priests, they have their own sins, which Jesus doesn't have. And therefore, they have to offer sacrifices. For themselves for as themselves. well as for others, yes. But Jesus doesn't need any sacrifice for himself. The sacrifice that he offered wasn't for himself. Right, exactly. It was for us. It's just for us. And that really shows the unique and complete character of Jesus' sacrifice, that he takes upon himself all of our sin and credits to us all of his righteousness. And all of this, of course, as will be developed later in the book, points why there can be no more sacrifice and no more priesthood. He has done it all. That, too, is part of the shame of Rome to detract. They claim they don't detract, but in fact, they do detract from the perfection and completeness of Jesus' sacrifice by claiming their priests continue to offer propitiatory sacrifice at the altar. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Even if it's a memorial sacrifice, by calling it propitiatory, and again, to propitiate is to turn away the wrath of God. And so, if by logical necessity, God's wrath still needs to be turned away, then Jesus' sacrifice wasn't perfect, wasn't final, wasn't once for all. Right. And you can't have it both ways. No. And, you know, another complete flaw in Rome's way of thinking there is they say it's propitiatory but unbloody. That, too, is a contradiction of Scripture. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So they can't really have a propitiatory sacrifice without blood. And is it really unbloody? I mean, having consecrated, not to get too far into the weeds here, but having consecrated the elements, they are said by Rome to be transubstantiated. So the essence of them is no longer what they were. It's now the literal body and blood of Christ right. that is being offered in a memorial way. I suppose in a sense it could be bloodless, but in a sense not really. Their teaching is that the blood is there. Now, they may say, well, the blood is not poured out as it was on the cross, but even that becomes problematic if we're drinking the blood. Well, exactly. We are, if Rome is correct, they are distributing the body and blood. So these are distinctions without a difference, it seems, at least arguably. There are distinctions that, it seems to me, run up against the book of Hebrews and are utterly rejected by the book of Hebrews. So Jesus is our high priest. He didn't appoint himself. Right. He was appointed. Right. By the Father. That's uh, clear from verse 5 5. He didn't exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. When was he appointed? Some might say in his baptism, where God appears and testifies that this is his beloved son. In another sense, of course, he's appointed from eternity in the eternal counsels of God. So at various points, we could say that he's appointed and set aside to the priesthood and service of God. Maybe both are true. Yeah. That he's always been the son. He's the eternally begotten right. son of God. And yet he does take up his office in a particular time in the history of salvation. And then, of course, we've already touched on the Melchizedekian priesthood that comes up in verse 6. So let's close with a meditation uh, on these last few verses in this section, verses 7 and following. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. You know, I think this is returning to that theme that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. 
Again, I think there is always a temptation to say, well, really, Jesus had it easy. He wasn't sinful, and he was the son of God. And, you know, his life may have had its ups and downs, but the great crucial things were pretty easy for him. And this is rightly reminding us that is just not true. His life was a life of suffering. His life was a life of temptation. And his life was a life of learning. It didn't come all just automatic to him. And so that, too, is part of the way that he can identify with us in our need. He understands what it is to suffer when we suffer. He understands what it is to be tempted when we're tempted. Hence 5.8 says he learned obedience through what he right. suffered, which is one of the most extraordinary things, really, to think about. That God the Son, right, we've, we've just said very quickly, eternally begotten with the language of the, of the Catholic creeds, the universal creeds, particularly I'm thinking of the Nicene, the eternally begotten Son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, became incarnate and learned obedience through the things he suffered. And this is an elaboration of what was said, again, back in chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is underscoring that although he is the eternal Son of God, as we've been told over and over again in Hebrews 1, he is also truly and fully human. And so this is the critical understanding of who Jesus is. We can go to him because he understands. He understands our struggles. He was made perfect. He had to be made perfect. And he right. was made perfect, right? and therefore we can rely on him. And thus the pastor says, he became, having become perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated in verse 10 by God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. That is what Jesus, as the covenant head of his people, provides for his people, eternal salvation, a salvation that cannot be taken away, uh, a salvation that is secure, but it is secure to those who are in him. And that's why the call is be in him. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.